Good morning. If you would turn to James chapter 2. I believe this is our final week in chapter 2. As you're turning there, have you ever, anyone ever killed two birds with one stone? Has anyone ever done that? Mason has. Right? Actually, probably not. If he told you that, he's likely lying. But I know that you've heard this phrase, right? You know the phrase, kill two birds with one stone? You know where it comes from? I don't think anybody really knows for sure. Some think the phrase comes from um, Daedalus and Icarus. Icarus fashioned some wings out of two birds and fashioned them to him with wax and then got cocky and flew too close to the sun and wax melted and the wings fell off. Some think that's the sort of background to the phrase. I don't think it really fits. Could be from, I'm sure you've all, all read the Proverbs of John Hayward, 1546. <laughs> no, I didn't think so. Um, he says, I will learn to stop two gaps with one bush. Um, same idea, I think, but not the same words. The exact rendering of the phrase is first seen in 1656 in Thomas Hobbes' The Questions Concerning Liberty, Necessity, and Chance. It says, he thinks to kill two birds. This is a quote. He thinks to kill two birds with one stone and satisfy two arguments with one answer, whereas in truth he satisfies neither. So the point of that is, if you try to kill two birds with one stone, or if you try to answer two arguments with one answer, um, you're likely to miss both. You're likely to not satisfy either. Um, I think that's a, a fair summation of what Thomas Hobbes is saying. I, I did that. You know, we've all tried to do that, and maybe in, in little things we've done that successfully, but I tried to do that actually when I was in, in, uh, at, at Southeastern. And the first time there, first year there, between being a new husband, not really a new husband, but a, a husband and a new dad, um, going to school full-time, and then also working full-time. So I would go to school from 8 till about 1, and then go to work till about nine some days, some days like seven, come home, study, um, wake up in the morning, study, go to class and do it all over again. Um, I, I lost like 180 pounds. What you see was 180 pounds lighter back then. No, just, but I'm not that heavy. But um, I failed at trying to kill two birds with one stone. And what I did was I tried to use my Bible reading for class for my devotional reading. I thought I could kill two birds with one stone. I failed miserably in my, my spiritual life was affected to the negative. So all of that, you're thinking, how does that fit in with James? Um, especially James chapter uh, 2. Well, my goal with all of this um, in James chapter 2 is sort of pointed to what we've already talked about and what we're going to finish today, particularly verses 20 through 26, but the whole of it, verses 14 through 26. Um, and in that, we have you know, two birds. The first bird is the controversy surrounding, you know, what is Paul, uh, or how, what does James mean in relation to Paul? James says, you know, in verse 24, that we're justified by works, not just by faith. And then Paul in Romans chapter 3, verse 28, says that we are justified by faith apart from you know, the works of the law. So I think we settled the controversy pretty well. The two, Paul and James, are not at odd. 
at odds. Paul and James are actually just looking at salvation from two very different perspectives. Paul is looking at how we initially come into a right standing um, with God, and that is by grace, through faith, in Jesus Christ, apart from any meritorious work that we might think we do. And so that is our, how we come into a right standing um, with God. While James is looking at salvation from the standpoint of a person who professes to already be in a right standing with God. And so James' point, 14 through 26 of chapter 2, is that you really are, if you really are saved, and there really will be evidence, if you really are saved, if you have a saving faith, um, then there will be fruit or there will be works, as he says. So we looked at last week sort of the, the, the doctrine of salvation from all of the different angles and showed that, that James is not inconsistent at all with the rest of Scripture. As Jesus says, good, good trees bear good fruit. You know? So a living faith produces works that we couldn't do without a living faith. So that's one bird. But there's another bird. There's also the very real-life issue that James uses as an example of a work that flows out of a saving faith, and that's in verses 15 through 16. And so it's if someone asks for something, particularly a brother or a sister in Christ, if someone asks for something um, that they need for their body and you have it, a living faith will give that to them. So, so the tough part of this passage is sort of that pesky problem of focusing on the doctrine so much that we miss the application. And so we as Reformed people oftentimes can do that. We focus on the doctrine. And so we might do something like, oh, now I get how Paul and James, you know, are reconciled and they're not at odds with one another. Let's move on to chapter 3. And if we do that, James would say, wait a minute, we still got the poor guy who needs some shirt or some bread. So you've missed the point. So we oftentimes fail in trying to kill two birds with one stone, but, but God never does, <laughs> of course. And so what are the two birds that, that God is killing in James chapter 2? I think, really, it's assurance of faith. We can't read James chapter 2 without asking the question, is that me? Am I? Do I have a living faith? Do I have a faith that saves? Or do I have a dead faith? So one bird is assurance of our salvation. And the second one um, is helping or serving those who are particularly suffering. Um, both of them pretty big words, but that's always how doctrine works. And so orthodoxy leads to orthopraxy, which means good doctrine leads to good practice, as it should. And it's all very quite natural if we have our eyes pinned right, because the one stone that God kills our two birds with is Jesus. Now, if we're focused upon Christ first and foremost before us, and we're daily being nourished by Jesus Christ, as we talked about last week, a living faith continues to, to feed off of Christ. If we're doing that, then quite naturally we'll serve others as he served others. And out of that then comes assurance that we're becoming like him. We're growing to be more like him. That's why we were chosen. That's why we are predestined. Romans 8, 29. So God has good aim. Like no one else, God kills two birds with one stone. So this morning we're going to finish James' argument um, in verses 20 through 26. And then we're going to kind of circle back to verses 15 through 16 in our applications as we try to, again, apply all of this uh, to us. So as we get started, let's remind ourselves of you know, how verses 14 through 19 have gone. So James begins with a question in verse 14. Can a faith that has no works or no fruit, can that faith save? The answer is obviously no. 
And then he goes on, let me illustrate that for you, verses 15 through 17. So the scenario I just presented to you, a, a fellow believer comes to you in need of the, ba- the, the, <laughs> the body's basic needs. Um, and if you have it, but don't share it with him, then um, likely your faith is dead. He asked, the question is asked again, what good is that? And James says, no good at all. We'll sort of answer that question in another way today. Then it leads him to a second illustration, verses 18 through 19. Someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. So James asks, what good is your faith if you don't have any proof of that through fruit or through works? Someone responds, meh, um, I, uh, I believe just like you believe. James says, well, you believe uh, that God is one. Good for you. So do the demons. Um, but it's works that prove saving faith, not a belief that is equal to demons that doesn't save. And so from there, what we talk about this morning, James proves his point with an unlikely pair of witnesses. So we have Abraham on the one hand, and we have Rahab on the other. Um, I don't know that there could be a more unlikely pair, and I think that's on purpose um, as we look at this this morning. So proof that saving faith will have works um, kind of the positive angle to what James is saying, but I think that's his point. So as, we, as this p- passage starts, he comes in pretty hot. Um, we saw Paul do the same thing in 1 Corinthians 15, wake up from your drunken stupor, but, but here he says, you foolish persons, um, you're a fool. If you don't get that a faith that doesn't bear fruit is pointless, is useless, and cannot save, and so he says, let me prove it to you. So the first proof is Abraham. Um, Verse 21, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a, a friend of God. So James starts this out in actually Genesis 22. So if you go back, the story that he's referring to here is is in Genesis chapter 22. He'll back up to Genesis 15 as we work our way down through those verses. But he starts seven chapters later in Genesis chapter 22. And that's because his primary argument here is that works validate or confirm a saving faith. And so this is the Abraham story. Um, I doubt that anybody, even even people who have never darkened the, the doorway of a church probably know this story to some, to some extent. And so, so here it is, Genesis 22, verse 2. He said, Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. What a way to start. Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Now, I'm sure you know what happens from there. Off goes Abraham with Isaac. And they go up the mountain, and on top of the mountain, Abraham lies his son upon the altar. Abraham draws his blade. Can you imagine this? Abraham draws his blade to thrust it into his son out of obedience to God. But suddenly an angel of the Lord speaks. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. So that's the event that James is referring to in James chapter 2. And he makes four points that he doesn't want his readers to miss. 
And four points that I don't want us to miss as we work through that. That passage is chock full of ways to understand saving faith and works and how it goes together. And really, he beautifully, very beautifully, shows us how faith and good works or fruit that comes from it just cannot ever be separated. So point number one, Abraham was justified by works. And so at that moment, when Abraham offered up his son, Abraham, our father, was justified by works. That's what it says, our father was justified by works. Again, for emphasis, when James says justified by works, he's not saying that our initial standing with God is, is made right by meritorious works or by works that we do in order to you know, procure the favor of God. He, he's not saying that. That's, that's what Paul talks about. And we'll see that again in, in Genesis 15. But Paul refers to that as, you know, justified in the legal sense. We are justified by faith. Here, James is referring um, to um, a faith that is proven or validated or confirmed, or he says in verse 22, completed by works. So that's point number three, actually. But before we get to point three, we need to do point two. So Abraham was justified by works. Abraham's faith was proven, validated, confirmed, or completed by works or by fruit that flowed out of the faith. So point number two, Abraham's faith is, an a- is active in his works. And so verse 22, the very beginning, you see that faith was active along with his works. I, I think this is an easy point, but I think it's, it's beautiful. And I think it's really encouraging uh, for us. And we need to highlight it. James says that it's it's faith that is active in producing, really, Abraham's works. Paul says it this way in Galatians 5, 6. He talks about faith working through love. Um, Or in um, Romans 14, 23, whatever does not come from, proceed from, faith is sin. So faith, then, is where good works come from. Now, whenever we see some incredible display of someone's faith, do you ever try to imagine, do you ever ask the question, what would I do in that situation? We had a friend from college. It wasn't a close friend. He was more of an acquaintance of mine and not so much of Sonny, but, but um, he played baseball at, at this little tiny college in, in uh, Texas, a very strong believer. Um, he was after college. He's at Prestonwood Baptist. Maybe that rem- someone might remember that name. But he was at church on a Wednesday night and someone came in with a gun and started shooting people. And he dove on top of an elderly woman to save her life. And he did, but he died in the process. He was shot. Um, You ever think about things like that and you think to yourself, what would I do in that situation? If someone, you know, came into the church right now and started shooting the place, would I respond like that, you know, with faith out of love for my neighbor? Did you, as we're reading through this situation, sort of imagine being Abraham, asked to do something so unthinkable, so contrary, you know, um, to who we are? We don't know what lies ahead of us. We don't know what kind of trials of various kinds that, that God is going to sovereignly bring into our life. We don't know what God will demand of us because of those trials that, that He's going to bring in to our life, but whatever it is, if we have a real saving faith, whatever God requires of us um, will be enabled by 
and active faith that will show itself. I think that is so encouraging. And so again, the application is, from this is, is not to focus on yourself or what you might do or could do or even be afraid to do or struggle to do, but on God who has given us a faith that works in us to will and to work for His good pleasure. You probably maybe heard that faith is better to be understood as a tool rather than an act. Faith is better to be understood as an instrument rather than an, an act. There is certainly a volition that is awakened by God in our expression of faith towards Him. But it's spoken of in the Scriptures as a tool by which God enlivens us and then enables us to will and to work for His good pleasure, for His glory, for the benefit of others. So our faith is proven to be real by works, and this faith that God has given us is also the thing that enables us to do something like dive in front of an elderly woman or sacrifice something very precious to you because God demands it. That's our encouragement. It's faith working in us. It's not us. It's not our will. It's not our strength. It's the faith that God puts in us. So God justifies us by faith apart from works, then works proceed from that enabled by that faith. Which brings us to our third point. Abraham's faith was completed by his work. So again, verse 22, you see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his work. So here's another way of saying that. Abraham's faith, um, or Abraham's works, gave legs to his faith. Abraham's, that's like sort of a rubber hits the road kind of thing. As we said last week, knowledge and conviction of the truth are necessary pieces of, of saving faith, but knowledge of the truth and conviction that those things are true are by themselves not enough to save us. There's one more crucial element in order for our faith to be a saving faith, and that is trust. And so Abraham's willingness to sacrifice his son, his son showed that Abraham's faith was real. He didn't just profess something with his mouth. I believe that God is able to raise, raise the dead. He actually acted upon it. That's what Hebrews 11 tells us of him. He didn't just believe that God raised the dead. He actually acted upon it. Think of all that was at stake. If you go back to Genesis 15, I have no heir. Go outside. Count the stars. Your offspring will outnumber the stars. And now he has this one heir, and he's asked to kill him. That's incredible. <laughs> so it's, um, but I like the, the way that James puts it here, completed by his works. I think this helps us to see more clearly how inseparable saving faith and works are. We could say it this way, with his works... Abraham's faith reached its end, or its goal. Or with his works, Abraham's faith yielded its result. Or with his faith, Abraham's um, work bore its fruit. But I think we get that. But if we want to think about it properly, we need to think about it in this sense, that God has a bigger goal with giving you saving faith than just saving you. The goal is not your salvation. The end goal is not your salvation. God does all things for His own glory, not yours. 
And so with our faith, God has a bigger goal than just saving us. Paul says it this way, for by grace you have been saved through faith, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Now, these aren't works of the law to earn salvation, but good works or fruit, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So created in Christ for good works that God prepared before the foundation of the earth. And so Abraham's trip up the mountain to sacrifice his son was decreed by God before God created the earth. And to enable then Abraham to do that, God gave him saving, active faith. Faith was never meant to stay in his head or really even in his heart. It was given to show itself. And so it's the same for us. Your faith is not meant merely to make you believe or merely even to trust, but it's meant to show itself through fruit or good works. I don't hear amens very often. You throw me off when you do that. I'm just kidding. That's fine. I don't know who said it. Keep them coming. Just kidding. I might get all excited and stuff. But James has already sort of done this. Remember back to the very start. He says, count it all joy when you encounter various trials. And so count it all joy or consider it joy when, when, when God brings trials into your life. <laughs> and we say that that's, people think that's the hardest command in the Bible to obey. Sure. So what do we do? We need wisdom for that. And so what do you do? You ask God for wisdom. Verse 5 of chapter, of chapter 1. And what kind of wisdom does he give us? But, well, not just a wisdom that, that helps us just trust him, but a wisdom, chapter 3, verse 17, that is first pure, then peaceable, and then gentle, and then it's also full of mercy and full of good fruits. And so you enter into a trial that God brings into our life. He gives us the saving faith to believe Him through it, but it's also a saving faith that produces good fruits for others while we're in our trial. So James has already been working all of this out. So faith is shown by real works. Faith is the instrument by which God produces good works in us. And so good works are the fruit or the goal for which our faith is given to us. I don't know that we often think in that way. Um, but I think that shows us how they cannot be separated. The fourth point is this. The scripture was fulfilled, verse 23. So this is where he jumps back into, into Genesis 15. The scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. So again, that's Genesis 15 that Evan read from earlier, verse 6. And you know, So God has promised Abraham an heir, but he has none. His wife is old. <laughs> He's old. Uh, he says, all I have is my servant. God says, go outside, count the stars. Can you count them? No. Well, that's how many your offspring are going to be. Countless. Abraham believes him. And that's when Abraham is justified in the legal sense that Paul talks about in Romans chapter 3, verse 28. Abraham's faith was counted or considered to be righteousness, not his works. Working didn't make him right with God. Having an heir, making an heir, having countless heirs by itself is, is, is not what made him right with God. It was believing God. And then seven chapters later, Genesis 22, when Abraham finally has a son, and he is obedient to offer up that son that he loved on an altar, that's when the scripture that said Abraham was considered righteous was fulfilled. 
He was considered righteous in Genesis 15. It's fulfilled in Genesis 22. It's not that there's, it's missing or it's not sure if it's there, but it's brought out. It's fulfilled. The scripture itself is revealed. So his legal justification was, was proven to be a real justification by works. So summing it up, our, our faith is confirmed to be real by good works. Our faith actively produces good works. Good works are the purpose of our faith, glorifying God, serving others. So these good works that are enabled by an act, active faith prove our right standing then with God. Assurance of salvation. It was true of Abraham, and it's true of Rahab, which is our second proof. Verse 25, in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? So what do we do with her? Well, James makes it really easy. Four words in the same way. (laughs) Take Abraham's name out, put Rahab's name in, is what you do there. The story that he's referring to is Joshua 2. The gist of it is that she, being a pagan Canaanite, surprisingly saves Jewish spies from, from death by hiding them in her house. And so because she believed, verse 11 in Joshua chapter 2, that God is the God of the Israel, God is, Yahweh is the God of heaven and earth, she believed him. And so she hid, probably not a house, probably a bar or a brothel is where she's living, hides them, these two spies, in her house. And that's kind of the point of the passage. <laughs> but as Israel you know, dispatches Egypt, then the Amorites, the entire city of Jericho is frightened. She's, Joshua chapter 2 says that their hearts were melted. It says the entire city, their hearts were melted. It says that the spirit, I'm, I'm imagining spirit to fight, was taken out of every man within Jericho because of what's coming toward them as Israel draws near, but Rahab stands out. She stands out from them. She trusts God and that what he's doing, he's going to tear Jericho to, its, to ashes. She believes that and so acts and cower in fear like the men, but she stands, she believes, and she responds to God. We'll come back to her in, in just a minute. So what do you think the city or the men of the city would have done had they known that she hid spies from Israel? Likely killed her. So she's risking a lot. We might not put her in the same category of God commanding Abraham to kill his own son, but there's, there's a lot there. She's like, you know, she knows her family's going to die. Um, but regardless, God demanded something astounding, something very risky, something that betrayed her natural allegiances to her own people. By faith, through faith, she believed. And so everything that we saw of Abraham's faith and, and works is in the same way with Rahab. But whereas Abraham was this wealthy, moral, you know, the father of Israel, um, the nation of Israel, this pillar of society, Rahab has some obvious strikes against her. First of all, she's a woman, so no offense, ladies, but that's a strike against her in those days. To, um, she's a woman. She's poor, as I said, most likely living in a brothel. Uh, She's an outcast, even amongst Canaanites. She's a minor figure in the society, um, and she's a prostitute, which then brings us to our applications that we we close with. 
The difference between Abraham and Rahab helps us see ourselves in this whole thing that James has been talking about in, in James chapter 2, of faith being confirmed and enabled and completed by works. Um, how? Well, um, application number one is it's what I've already said, but it's faith is what matters. Abraham and Rahab are quite literally opposites. And so there's a biblical you know, tool, um, teaching tool, called a um, merism. Um, and what it does is, I think I give an example, um, is that the, the idea is you take polar opposites of a whole, within a whole, but you take polar opposites um, and you use those um, to speak of everything in between. <laughs> so an example would be to show that someone searched everywhere for something, we say that we searched high and low. We searched high, we searched low, that means we searched everywhere know, in between. Well, that's Abraham and Rahab representing everyone in between. And so in the same way applies to not only Abraham and Rahab, but to every believer in Christ. And so it's Abraham, Rahab, and us. Everything we said of Rahab or of Abraham is true of Rahab, and everything we said of Abraham is true then of us. And so it doesn't matter if you're Angela the Photog or Nathan the Pilot, that's not a merism. I'm not saying one is good and the other is bad. They're the us. Maybe I, no, I'm just kidding. Um, it doesn't matter if you're you know, Tim the Dispatcher or Noah the Marketer. It doesn't matter if you're Nick Sagnella the Lawn Drainer or Nick Carpenter. I still don't know what you do for a living. And so, at least I don't understand it. I know you've said words and I don't know what they mean, but. You get the idea. It doesn't matter. It's the same for all of us. We have Abraham on one side. We have Rahab on the other. And every believer is in between. We are all made right with God by faith in the person of Jesus Christ. We are all made right with God based upon a faith that God gives us that causes us to look to the person of Jesus Christ who died the death we could not die and who was raised to life. That's how we are made right with God. And that faith then is confirmed by fruit, by good works. And we can be encouraged by that, not intimidated by that, but encouraged by that because the instrument through which these good works come is not us, but the faith that is within us. God will draw that, those works out of us. And so faith is what matters. Someone asked, why don't you keep saying living faith, you know, this church is named Living Faith, and I, I've said this the entire sermon like for three weeks and never once thought of our own church. I don't know why that is, but um, that's why we named it this. I don't know. Faith is what matters, not, the God, not, not who God gives it to. It, the, who God gives the faith to doesn't matter. It's the faith that matters that's within us. When God says he's impartial, he really means it. Abraham, Rahab, us in the middle of it. So faith is what matters. That's pretty awesome. Second application. God may ask you to sacrifice something great. For Abraham, it was his son. For Rahab, it was her own life. A bit of a side note. Some people surmise that Rahab was a, you know, prostitutes constantly enjoined to her name because, you know, she lied to protect these spies. That's a bit of a downer. And I think that idea or that perception diminishes the way God is glorified through this woman in the midst of this awful or good but difficult trial. 
And so it's an ethics lesson for us, actually. So if the choice is between God and the world, choose God. And so you have God's cause to destroy Jericho and God's people, the two spies, on one side. And then you have Jericho or the Canaanites on the other side. And so Rahab was called to choose God and God's people, even if it means she must lie to protect them. It's that movie that says, you know, you can't handle the truth. What is that? Whatever, a few good men. Whatever, is that right? It's Jack Nicholson standing on the, on the thing. You can't handle the truth. Well, there are times where Christians are put in certain situations where they can't handle the truth. We don't owe the truth to people who are opposing God and seeking to murder his people. You can speak the truth if you want, but Moses and the nursemaids, Rahab here. And so that's not, that's not for us to say we can lie to any unbeliever we want to. You know, if the, a cop pulls us over and he's unbeliever, no, I wasn't speeding. No, that's not what it's saying. If, there's a, if God's cause is on one side and God's people is on that side and there's a force, there's a world pressing against them, seeking to harm or destroy or thwart, and you're caught in the middle. You don't owe the truth to the world. You owe choosing God through that. That's a difficult ethics thing, but it's one that I'm not the only one who holds to that. (laughs) But that's not to say that won't happen to you. You This I'm not saying we are going to be put in these situations where we have to choose our life or the lives of others, but I'm not saying it won't either. Um, God required Abraham and Rahab to risk everything that was dear to them. God might require the same of you. And so what's the answer to that? It's faith. Living faith enables us to choose Christ because living faith sees the beauty and the glory and the excellency of Jesus Christ to such a degree that we're willing to deny even ourselves. Matthew 16, Jesus said, told the disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? See, God has already demanded everything from us. It may not be put to the test yet, God has demanded everything from us. Luke 14, Jesus said it this way, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. He's not saying go out and hate your mother. It's another teaching tool. Your love must be so great for Christ that if challenged by your mother, you turn from your mother and you follow Christ. Your love is greater for Christ than it is for, your, for even your own mother. So I, I don't know if, what, what God is going to require of us in the future. I don't know if we'll be put in some really difficult scenario like Rahab was, but he might. He might. And maybe you'll fail at first. But living faith will always compel you to choose Christ. It will internally compel you. If you're feeding on Christ, it will compel you to to choose Christ. And living faith will be active within you to enable you to do what you might think is otherwise impossible. That's as encouraging as it is beautiful. And then application number three, good works are good works. So God might bring big, scary Abraham and Rahab situations into your life, or he might not. 
It might just be stuff like verses 15 and 16. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace and be warmed and filled without giving them things needed for the body, what good is that? So we just went from scary to convicting. <laughs> Here. So a few things. If a brother or sister, James is talking about a fellow church member, and I think primarily in the local church. So if a brother or sister um, comes to you um, and is in need, <laughs> give to them. We've had a guy in need that's come to our church on a number of occasions. He always brings his daughter with him every single time, and he's come, and I've helped him twice. We, the church has helped him twice. My kind of rule is if you're coming, if you're going to call or do whatever and ask for something from the church, you have to meet with me so I can share the gospel with you while, I, while we try to help you. Well, he's come twice. We've helped him twice. Um, he came another time um, um, that he saw me. There's another, he came a fourth time when he didn't see me, but he came a third time where he saw me and he asked me if, I would, if we would help him again. I said, no. He professes to be a believer. But I asked him, I said, I said, listen, there's a local body here that will love you and will help you in these situations so it doesn't have to get to this dire place where you get where you need something all, all of a sudden or we're going to lose everything. I said, there's a local body here that you profess to be a believer. Come join our local body. I'll pick you up. We'll have someone pick you up, bring you to church. Come. Never once has he come. He said, yes, yes, I'll, call. I'll do that. I'll call. I've called. doesn't answer he came again and, uh, when Jenny was here, and she saw him, and, and he actually, she said, I'll go get the pastor, or, or something like that. I'll get the pastor, and he just left because he knew he wasn't going to get anything. There are times where we have to be very discerning about how we help the poor, and so the Bible does actually give us lessons for that. It says that there, there are some people that we ought to help, and so that's, you know, family members, 1 Timothy 5, 8, and then fellow church members, you have Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 6, John chapter 3, 1 John chapter 3, verses 16 through 17. And the Bible says that they were free, not obligated, but free to help fellow believers who are beyond that circle of our local body. We can, that's 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 8. We can help, but we're not obligated. It doesn't say it in the, in the language of ought um, to help. Um, and we're free to help unbelievers. Galatians chapter 6, verse 10 is opportunity um, provides itself. Again, not compelled, but where we have opportunity, especially if it's dire and right, needs something right then, if someone you know, is drowning in the river, who, regardless of who they are, we should dive in to help them and get them. And so we're, 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 we're able to. Um, we could go a lot further with these. We're free to do that. But again, it's not obli we're not obligated by the Scriptures. And then the Bible says there are people we must not help. And so that would be fa um, false teachers. Um, there's a uh, I won't say his name. Anyway, and then also lazy people. We've mentioned that before. If someone's unwilling to work and is able to work, don't give to them. That's a, an act of church discipline. So what do you do if someone on the street comes up and asks for money? You're free to do what you want. You're free to use these guidelines to sort of give you wisdom as to how you react. But what I would ask you to do is talk to them. Don't just make it a transaction of money talk to them, investigate why it is. I've met young people in their early, middle to late 20s who choose to live on the street because they can gain enough, they can raise enough money every single day by asking or begging and they don't have to have a job. That's, they've just, it's a chosen life. You know, talk to these people. Ask what, why they're in need or you know, presenting this need to you. Investigate and share the gospel. Point, the whole point is to share Christ with him. But you're free to use those guidelines to give as you're, you're led. But if it's family, 
you know, that isn't excluded because of false teaching or laziness, help them. If it's a church member here who doesn't exclude himself by laziness, we ought to give. And so given that, those are not big, scary situations that God brings into our life, but you know what? Just as much faith is required to act upon those as it is for the big, scary situations. Because we're to act based on love, faith working through love. We're to act because we love them because they're created in the image of God. Or we're to act because they're especially blessed by God because they've been saved. And so when someone's in need and we have the ability to help, we ought to help. That's faith working through love and makes us look like Christ, which is the goal. And application number four, works proceed from faith means that we're a friend of God. I could go on and on here. I won't, but just read that verse again. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scriptures were fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. That sounds improper, doesn't it? Maybe of Abraham, but not us. Abraham was a friend of God, but I haven't quite reached that level. It's not improper to speak of that in terms of us, if you're a believer. John 15, 15, Jesus says to his disciples, I have called you friends. The ground for that is that because I've shared with you what the, my Father's will is. Has God shared with us what his will is? Ephesians 1, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose. God, by the Spirit, has imparted his will to us. Unbelievers can read this book, but only we get it. He lavished us with wisdom and insight that we might understand his will. And so for that, we can refer to ourselves as friends of God. Another proof of our friendship, John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. If we have living faith, it's because Jesus laid down his life for us. He didn't lay down his life for everyone. Only for those the Father gave to him before the foundation of the earth. He only laid down his life for his friends, not his enemies. And he's a friend to us like David was a friend to Jonathan. David and Jonathan, I think that's one of Daniel's favorite stories, was a, was a beautiful friendship, but it didn't stop David from being Jonathan's king. When David asks Jonathan to demonstrate his faithfulness, Jonathan responds, whatever you say, I will do. Jesus says the same thing. You are my friends if you do what I command. We are his friends, and we will do what he commands if he's given us a faith that is active in our life. And so again, our faith is confirmed to be real by good works. Our faith actively produces Good works. Good works are the purpose of our faith, glorifying God and serving others. And so these good works that are enabled by an active faith prove our right standing with God. It's true of Abraham, it's true of Rahab, and it's true of us. If you're an unbeliever here this morning, a couple pages over, in James chapter 4, he says this. And so I'm, I'm talking to you if you do not know Christ in a saving way, if you have not been given a living faith, if you don't 
feed off of Christ and good works flow out of you because of that faith. You adulterous people do not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. A friend of God and then an enemy of God. If that's you this morning, I would implore you to look to Christ. Your hope is found in Christ. Our hope as believers is still found in the person of Christ. Our hope for assurance is resting upon the person of Christ, resting in the finished work that He has done for us. That's the basis for our assurance. And that faith then produces works. But that's your hope as well if you're an unbeliever here this morning. And if that's you, I would plead with you to turn to this one, Jesus Christ, who is able to make you a friend of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for um, time in it. We thank you for the book of James. We pray that we would continue to learn lessons from it, that we would grow in it. Father, I pray that, that we would um, grow in gratitude for the, the faith that you've given us who are yours. I pray that we would see how inseparable that, that, that is from our works. And how encouraging that is for us that our works not come from us, but from that faith. And for the one here today who does not know you, Father, we pray that you would open their eyes, that you would open their, give them new ears, that you would give them a new heart, that on this day they might look to Christ in a way they never have, see what they've never seen, hear in a way they've never heard, and find hope in him. Father, we pray that you would grant them that today. In Christ's name we pray.